Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this most unusual of Easter Sundays. And that was a powerful song with powerful imagery, moving and emotional. But at the end of it, there's hope. There's hope for the future. And in these difficult times, with coronavirus and all the devastation it's bringing to our world, we certainly need some hope. And that's what the Easter message is all about. So thank you for joining us today. And um, if you're with us on Good Friday, you'll know how we looked at the death of Jesus on the cross. It was painful, hurtful, emotionally draining, and it led Jesus' followers to run in fear and scatter and hide. That was not the outcome that they had anticipated. But there's good news. The good news today is that he has risen. Jesus has risen. Right before Jesus died on the cross on the first Good Friday, the Bible says, After this, Jesus knew that everything had been done so that the scripture would come true. He said, I am thirsty. And when Jesus tasted the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he died. John chapter 19, verse 28 to 30. It is finished was a shout of victory. The phrase is actually a single word in the original Greek language, tetelestai, tetelestai. It was a very common word in the ancient Greek society with many meanings. And Rick Warren points out that when Jesus said these words on the cross, he was referring to each of these different meanings. It was used by servants and employees who returned to their master with news that they'd finished the task. Jesus had finished the task that God had given him. It was a legal term used to announce that a prisoner had completely served their prison time. Jesus made sure that justice had been served for our sin. It was also an accounting term meaning a debt had been paid in full. Jesus completely paid our debt. And artists used it as a term when painting a picture to denote the final stroke of the brush. Jesus sacrificed, finished God's greatest masterpiece by making it possible for the pinnacle of his creation, us, human beings, to be redeemed from our sin. And priests use the term when they offered a sacrifice to God to say, the sacrifice has been made. Jesus' death on the cross was the sacrifice for our sin. That one single word, if you like, separates Christianity from any and every other religion on the planet. All other religions are about what you need to do to be right with God. Jesus says, it is finished. You don't need to do anything to have access to God. He's done everything. You just need to trust him. But how could we know that? How could we be sure of that? At the time, Jesus' friends and followers didn't see it that way. His enemies didn't see it that way. So what changed things? The resurrection 
changed everything. Jesus proved who he claimed to be by his resurrection. His physical resurrection from the dead is the defining distinction of our Christian faith. Indeed, the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15 for that one. But let's get back to the disciples. We mentioned them on Friday, I've mentioned them earlier. These are the 12 blokes who'd spent three years with Jesus during his earthly ministry. How did they react to his death? Now, Jesus had forewarned them what would happen, but clearly they didn't quite get it. Here's just a few examples in Matthew chapter 20. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And verse 26, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Verse 31, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Even his accusers said that this was part of Jesus' claim. And Matthew 27 and verse 63 says, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Yet we read that at his arrest, all of his disciples fled away and were scared for their lives. Mark 14 and 50 says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. Matthew 26 and verse 56 says, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. The day of Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were still hiding for fear of the Jews. In John 20, 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. See, Jesus' disciples were clearly cowards who were trying to preserve their own lives. But look what happens just three weeks later. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. All of a sudden, they weren't scared for their lives anymore. And they risked imprisonment and persecution and certain death for testifying 
about the risen Saviour. Eleven of the twelve apostles died a martyr's death. Let's just look at the way the following followers of Jesus died. Andrew was crucified. Bartholomew was crucified. James, Jesus' brother, was stoned. James, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword. Only John died naturally. Matthew was crucified. Peter was crucified upside down. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. And Thomas died of a spear thrust. Now who in their right mind would die for a lie? Something they know to be a lie. Maybe if that person was a lunatic. But how can we explain a group of people being willing to die for a lie? That's just not possible. What compelled these disciples to preach the message of a risen saviour is the fact that they had witnessed it with their own eyes, that Jesus had indeed been risen. Their changed lives provide solid testimony that Jesus is alive. And Peter affirms this in 2 Peter 1 and 16. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. The Apostle John confirms this as well in 1 John 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life the life appeared we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and has appeared to us we proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, went from persecuting Christians after the risen Jesus spoke to him on the Damascus Road to becoming a follower and a leader of the Christians. He stopped persecuting them and instead he embraced them as his own brothers and sisters. Instead of their foe, he had become their friend. And he started to proclaim the Christian message that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead three days later. Why the sudden transformation? He had witnessed the risen Saviour personally. According to tradition, the Romans executed Paul for his beliefs of the risen Saviour. Would Paul be willing to die for a lie? Absolutely not. He didn't believe the message of the Christians at first. It's only after he met Jesus face to face that he became a Christian himself. And he was willing to die a martyr's death because, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, last of all, he appeared to me also. Now, some of you may have heard of 
Charles Colson, more commonly known as Chuck Colson. And he served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon in 1969 and 1970. And he became notorious as a political saboteur for President Nixon, and he masterminded some of the dirty tricks that led to the president's downfall, now known as the Watergate scandal. Now, he was jailed in 1973, but he became a Christian, and for the rest of the life, he did many great things. He set up the um, Christian Prison Fellowship, uh, amongst other good works. But he said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world at the time. And they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. For me, not only do I believe this intellectually on the evidence, I know it experientially in the life I've lived since my conversion experience some 35 years ago. At that time, I wasn't seeking God at all. I hadn't been brought up in a church-going household. And my life was good, and in the eyes of the world, I was successful. But my wife Margaret met Jesus and became a Christian. And I saw such a positive change in her that on the third day after that, I too gave my life to Christ. I was changed and whilst my wide circle of friends at the time laughed and said, not to worry Terry, you'll get over it and you'll be back with the lads in a few weeks. I never did. And I cannot imagine my life without Jesus in it. And my tattoo kind of says it all. I'll try and show you that. The cross is formed of the three nails, the nails that nailed Jesus to that cross. It pierces through the crown of thorns that was placed on his head. And the words Mark 16.6 denote the phrase, he is risen. So this morning, the news I bring you in the midst of this horrendous coronavirus fear and devastation is the greatest news in all the world. That God raised his son Jesus from the dead to reign forevermore. And in raising him from the dead, he achieved these things. He gave us forgiveness and glorified Jesus as the all-sufficient forgiver. He gave us a friend to count on and glorified Jesus as totally reliable. He gave us guidance and unchanging truth and glorified Jesus as the absolute foundation of truth and righteousness. He gave us a life that is not pitiable, but enviable. A ministry that is not in vain, 
but fruitful and glorify Jesus as the source and goal of all life and ministry. And he gave us everlasting joy that will not be ended by death and glorify Jesus as the author of life, the victor over death and the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. I want to thank John Piper for drawing me to those facts. So will you lift up this? Will you this morning lift up your heart and worship your risen Saviour? Will you come to him and turn from your ways and go his way? Will you accept his offer of peace from now and for all eternity? Worthy is the lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his blood to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. Amen. So please do spend a bit of time thinking about the Easter message from Good Friday to Easter Sunday today. Think about your relationship with God and with Jesus. And I pray that you will stay safe, stay well, and get through this coronavirus crisis with us. For our God knows everything and he is in control, even though we might not see his purposes right now at this time of struggle. God bless you all. Amen. See you next time.